what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and before i introduce my amazing guest rob brooks just real quick really really quick uh just a couple things so at the time of releasing this it is february 11th and i just want to give you all a reminder or for those of you who are new welcome and you're just now learning of this but anyways uh I did get a job offer. So I'm going to be starting a new job uh, in March, the beginning of March. So I'm not sure what the podcast schedule is going to be like. And here's what I've been doing. I've been recording a ton of episodes, trying to bank them up. And I'm like, I'll just do one a week until then. But I hate holding on to episodes for a long time. Like I, even though like no guest has ever like complained or anything, I don't like like recording with somebody and having them take time out of their schedule and, you know, then just hanging on to it for weeks. So I'm starting to like upload a lot of these and uh, like this episode with Rob Brooks, it's the second one for the week. I have a bonus episode coming out Sunday as well. Um, but yeah, so stay tuned. Make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, because uh, I'm not sure what the new schedule will be like. And I'm hoping to balance this and figure out a way to like schedule guests and all that. But I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I read far too many books and I love having conversations with so many of these awesome authors. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And second thing, some of you are listening to this episode a day early. And for those of you wondering, Chris, how do I do that? How do I get access to early episodes? Well, that answer is very simple and I appreciate you asking. Head down to the description below, head over to my Substack. It's the rewiredsoul.substack.com. And when you become a paid subscriber, it's the low, low cost of $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get episodes a day early, some other benefits that I'm working on and all that kind of good stuff. And yeah, it helps support the podcast. So you get a little bit, I get a little bit. We all have a great time. All right. But those are just a couple updates. So yeah, let me discuss uh, and introduce my wonderful guest, Rob Brooks. So Rob Brooks, he wrote a book called Artificial Intimacy. And I think I mentioned this <laughs> in my conversation with Rob, but like when I came across it, I was debating on it for so long. I'm like, do I want to read this book? I'm like, is this just like hundreds of pages about sex robots? Because that will get really boring. And as soon as I started reading the book and getting into, you know, a lot of the ethical and philosophical questions that Rob is asking about where we're headed with artificial intelligence, technology, sex robots are included in there. Uh, I was like, yo, you got to come on the podcast so we can discuss this. So there's a lot of really, really interesting conversations to be had about the way our relationships are uh, evolving because of technology. So in this conversation, Rob and I discuss, you know, his background, uh, you know, his research, all that, and a bunch of different topics from the book. We talk about uh, artificial intelligence catfishing you, right? People uh, who are lonely building relationships with AI or robots. Uh, but most importantly, we get into some discussions around what the research says around, you know, uh, incels, uh, pedophiles, people who commit uh, sexual violence, and what the research says about 
you know, robots uh, and AI and all sorts of technology hoping to curb some of these behaviors and some of the research and discussions that are being had. So it's really, really interesting stuff. And I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you are following Rob uh, over on Twitter. And I've also linked his website, but most importantly, grab a copy of his book, Artificial uh, Intimacy. It is, uh, you know, I've heard, heard nothing but good reviews from people who read it, but I really, really hope more people check this book out. So many important conversations. So make sure you grab a copy and yeah. If you're new, make sure you're following and subscribed uh, to the podcast so you don't miss any of these upcoming episodes. Make sure you're following me on social media. And yeah, I'll shut up now. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Brooks about his brand new book, Artificial Intimacy. All right. Hello, Rob. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm absolutely wonderful. Just coming off a holiday. So, you know, I'm relaxed for the first time in months. Beautiful. So I got you nice and fresh. And yeah, we're going to be talking about your fantastic book, Artificial Intimacy. And I saw your book and I wanted to read it for a long time. And finally, uh, you reminded me of it. I got a review copy and I absolutely loved it. So before we dive into it, for those out there, who are unfamiliar with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what kind of work you do and all that stuff? Sure. So I'm an evolutionary biologist by background, and I've been um, working in the field for coming up 30 years, I suppose. Um, and I began working on small animals, mostly on questions to do with mate choice and uh, what we call sexual conflict, which is really the fact that even, you know, mating is a highly cooperative thing. That animals do and plants do, you know, combining half of your DNA with half of another individual's DNA, hugely cooperative kind of bet that you're taking on the future. Um, but at the same time, it's also riddled with conflict in that even a mummy and a daddy who love each other very much still have, you know, different ideas about how many kids to have and when to have them, et cetera. And when it comes down to various small animals, they do all sorts of nasty things to each other. They exploit each other, they trick each other. Um, and so that sexual conflict theory has been the one theme that's run through my research on small animals. About maybe 10, 12 years ago, I um, sort of got sufficiently well entrenched that I felt, you know, I had the job security to <laughs> study the questions that most interest me. And that is, you know, how do these kinds of insights relate to human mating and relationships and families? Um, because there are those kinds of conflicts there, even though, you know, we, we know about the dramatic stuff that happens, um, but even the little things that happen that shape relationships um, mm -hmm. are, can be really important. And, and this is a big, you know, if you go into those questions, you step into the culture wars, essentially, because you, yeah. you're right in the middle of, but coming at it from a, a different angle, it's not necessarily, you know, um, that that you favor a conservative or a progressive view necessarily with sexual conflict viewpoint, but it does create some opportunities for new insights. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been writing this book for about 10 years, sort of going, well, what can sexual conflict theory teach us about humans and about ideology and about all the things that divide us within societies? And it, it was a very heavy, very long book. And I don't know that anyone would have wanted to read it, but having seen all the 
um, the stuff about, particularly about sex robots, also, also about social media coming out in the last mm-hmm. five or six years, I would, that's actually, the, that's the future that we need to think about. That's the vehicle for understanding how evolutionary conflicts shape who we are um, as individuals as well as as a species. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you touched on some great stuff with it. And, and I think, you know, even the culture war aspect, I, I've had a lot of authors on here talking about that because uh, I think, man, I, I feel so bad, but I also respect all of you scientists out there because so many people are just trying to do their job and research stuff that they love. But the culture wars, like, come in because you're talking about things that people don't want you to talk about or they think, you know, this is offensive and stuff. And, you know, you bring up so many topics from this book that, I, that we're going to talk about. But as I'm reading it, like, I almost, like, shut off my emotions while I'm reading. And because you talk about things like, you know, uh, sexual assault, you talk about pedophilia, you talk about these things that are very difficult to talk about. And when I'm reading a book like on science, I shut off all that stuff and say, okay, what's the research say? So we'll dive into some of those, but I have a couple of questions for you because, you know, I'm always curious, how do you talk about these things? How do you get over it? So maybe you can give me some advice, but like, first off, I, and maybe this is just part of me. Maybe this is a Chris thing, but like, how do you deal like I'm sure when you've like met somebody at like a dinner party or maybe like you're introduced to like your spouse's friends or something and you tell them what you do and what you research, people might be like, well, that's kind of weird. Right. So like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you deal with that and having these conversations or do you just like separate it and you you don't dive into all the details when you meet new people? Because it seems like we should be ha- we should be normalizing these conversations just a little bit because there's stuff that we need to talk about, you know. Oh, look, absolutely. We have to normalize these conversations. And, you know, I'm very lucky, I guess, in that um, so sometimes when you have those conversations, when you're forced to sit next to somebody and they just take a polite interest, you know, they don't want all the heavy stuff, obviously. Mm. But I think you also owe it to yourself and you owe it to them to possibly bring the thing that you have that is interesting to the conversation. So, so I often lead in quite you know, quite obliquely um, in terms of, I guess, a bit like the intro to this um, this interview, you know, where I talk about the small animals and what, is, what mm. it is, the fascinating thing that various animals do. And that's one of the cool things about um, being an evolutionary biologist as opposed to a psychologist. Like I, I work alongside a lot of psychologists, but I'm, my first goal is to understand evolution. It's not necessarily to understand, you know, human emotions or a particular problem in human psychology. And so I'm able to lead in with these fascinating tales from natural history. And if people are super interested in that, then, um, I, you know, we'll often get around to humans that go, well, that's a bit like people, people do this thing or do that yeah. thing. And, you know, a lot of that is really just, um, you know, people love to layer their own ideological, you know, um, viewpoints and biases and baggage over the top of whatever parable you're telling them. And so, you know, the parable telling can only go so far because of course, sometimes, you know, you know, people are not penguins and they're not bed bugs and they're not, um, you know, seed beetles. Um, but if you could get people thinking about the natural world mm. and about the fact that there's a hell of a lot more possibilities out there than your little, you know, view in your little part of humanity that you interact with, um, then you've already begun to expand their minds. And, you know, mm-hmm. most people are intellectually generous enough to have that conversation. 
now and again, they're smart enough and, and, and you know, not smart enough, they're alert enough to the, um, to the possibilities downstream that their walls go up, but not very often. And then okay. you get a few people who are all, uh, and this would probably be more the case in, in North America than it is here in Australia, who, who get all, you know, oh, well, I don't believe in evolution, in which case, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, are you going to bother, you know, and yeah. if, if they're obnoxious about it, I'm happy to be obnoxious back, um, in my <laughs> own, you know, way, but yeah. so yeah, you're, you're right. And, and I know that you would face the same kind of issue and that is, you did, do you go in hard or do you go in softly or do you mm -hmm. let them come to you? And I tend to like to let people come to me where possible. Yeah. So, so I'm curious because, uh, like, um, Months ago, I had uh, David Buss on to talk about his latest book, like when men behave badly. And he does more evolutionary psychology with the sexual conflict mm. and all of that. And we talked a little bit about, you know, some, uh, you know, some culture war issues. But I'm curious, like from your experience, because uh, in the book, um, and we'll touch on these uh, topics more in depth, but we talk about like, uh, you know, um, rapists. We talk about incels. We talk about why people create violence and like you said i i love that kind of strategy of starting with animals and just saying like because they fight they do terrible things because they don't have these social things that we have but have have you personally ran into any pushback from uh some of the culture war type stuff when trying to explain uh like for example men behaving badly men doing terrible things you know whether it's like because of like competition, whether it's, you know, for mating or, you know, whatever, have you had any experience with that? Or is it different because you're in Australia? Cause here, like, for example, you probably heard about what happened with EO Wilson after he passed and that huge thing that happened, you know, with, with what scientific American. So again, that's where I'm like, I don't know how you, how you guys deal with this stuff. So have you had any experience with that or has it been kind of smooth sailing? Yeah. You know, um, I've, I've certainly had experience with it. I don't think you can possibly avoid it. And, you know, the evolutionary behavioral sciences is in this kind of, this real sweet spot, because, um, if you're going to piss people off, it's going to be from probably the left and the right. Uh, because on the, yeah. on, on the right, you've got the, the biblical creationists who also have this resident conservative view that this is the way things have always been, whatever it is that they favor mm -hmm. is the way that things have always been and therefore always will be and always should be. Um, and then on the left, you've got this, um, this notion, uh, I can't remember who coined the term, but they're cultural creationists and mm. it's, they ascribe just as much potency to culture as the, the religious right do to, um, to a deity, you know, it's a supreme deity. Um, and their notion of, you know, complete blank slate, everything's up for grabs, you know, we could teach men not to be rapists kind of stuff mm -hmm. is, um, it is just a strong. Now I've always thought that in my popular writing, I would cop it more from the left than from the right. Yeah. I've always expect that. And I think part of that is that obviously in the United States in particular, there's this, you know, um, the culture war is playing out in such a way that if you're, you know, you're not often having intelligent conversations that involve science with the right, with the real extreme right, because they're so far, you know, divorced from the, the kind of um, intellectual discourse, you know, on campus as well as off campus. Um, and, uh, uh, whereas there's still a bit of engagement, you know, scientists and, uh, cultural creationists still going to bump up against each other on campuses. And so you get a, 
tremendous amount more of that. There's obviously all the fuss about cancel culture, et cetera. You know, here in Australia, it's possible to, to go, you know, that's, that stuff's just overblown. It's just what you, what we're seeing is that is the noisy squeaky wheels in mm-hmm. North America. Um, and I, I can't say for sure which way it is apart from talking to my North American colleagues who often will go, no, no, it's very, very real. Um, yeah. and the UK has its own particular brand of that, it's a slightly different brand of that. Um, but certainly since at least Wilson in, in the early 1970s, uh, with sociobiology, um, but also a long time back, you know, um, going back into the 1930s in anthropology, anthropology made a very explicit decision that, you know, biology was not allowed to have any role in history. Um, you know, those are. And um, those are words of, of very important anthropologists back in the thirties, sort of reacting to, um, eugenics and just the general Victorian way of doing science, uh, oh. but also very specific nasty things that have happened that we do have to bear. So I've always expected to get more from more hassle from the left than from the right. But interestingly, when I, when I tend to write, I will often get it from the right that I'm either, you know, I, I'm either completely godless. Uh, you know, fine, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, or I'm, um, you know, have no sort of respect for the past, et cetera. And, and their past is really, you know, one to two generations back into yeah. world war two is when history began sort of things. So <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it's, it's really interesting too, because I, I, you know, I, I find myself, I you know a lot of people I've had on the podcast, you know, especially like, uh, uh and I think it's just. Because in academics and research, you do have like a majority of people leaning left, being a little bit more liberal. But like, we're supposed to be the side of like having conversations and debates and these things. But like you said, like we see this, this pushback. And that's like, for me, that's a whole nother conversation where it just, it gets kind of weird, right? We're supposed to be the ones mm. who believe in science and research and stuff. But there's so many things that are getting shut down because the culture wars are kind of seeping in. But um anyways like in in the overall topic of the book right like i like when i uh when i saw your book i was interested but i'm always afraid too because i've i've spent the hours reading books and i'm just bored out of my mind so i'm like man is this guy just going to talk about sex robots for like 300 pages like what is this right but you dive into so many things from like ai the dating websites sex robots obviously in there but so many different things so can you kind of explain you know with when you saw technology kind of going in a certain way, like, was it the rise of dating sites? Was it the rise of social media? When were you looking at it and you're like, huh, there's some interesting things happening. I want to look into this, see what the data says, see what the research says. And here's why I think it's important to talk about because yeah, everything is kind of gearing that way. I just wrote a Substack piece yesterday about how, you know, machines just taking jobs and stuff, but they're getting intertwined with our relationships heavily. Mm. Personally, like just a little fun fact about me, growing up online, uh, uh, being the 36-year-old millennial I am, most of my girlfriends and dating experiences have been through websites, right? Yeah. So so I, I get it, right? And it's become normalized with the, you know, online dating and stuff like that. Where back when I was young, they were like, oh, you're probably talking to some like, 50 year old man in this basement across the country. Right? But anyways, what, what, uh, kind of, uh, piqued your interest when you saw the way technology was going and why you want to kind of dive into this topic. So, um, is it about seven, six or seven years ago, and we got a new vice chancellor. It's like a new president to our university. Mm. And, um, 
he actually, he just finished yesterday. It was the end of his term. Um, and he set up a program called Grand Challenges, um, which was, we're going to talk about the most important issues of the day. Uh, and you didn't really know exactly how they wanted to do it, but they're going to have, you know, very prominent speakers come out and we'll have workshops and we'll get people from across the university speaking to each other. Because of course, at university campuses, we're as siloed as any corporation, probably more yeah. so. Um, and so I put my hand up and said, Hey, you know, why don't you interview me? I've got a few ideas how you could do that. Turns out I got the job. So, so one, one day a week, my job was to facilitate conversations and get really great speakers out and host them and, and do this week, which is really exciting. And the first few were climate change, refugees and migrants, inequality, all the kind of worthy things that you would do on a university campus. And I said, Hey, we're a technology university. We come out of it with, we're Australia's strongest engineering university. Um, we should be talking about 21st century tech, not the things that have we've worried that humanity's worried about and done heinous things about throughout history, which is very important topics, but let's do some forward looking stuff. So, um, I said, our next topic is going to be living with 21st century technology. What that let me do was I got to meet all of these amazing AI robotics, um, you know, digital safety kind of people. Um, especially around the university and then they brought their networks in. And I remember this very clearly. One, I, I started to get interested in sex robots. I thought, well, I, I've studied sex and we're doing tech here. So I'm going to keep, make sure that we have yeah. a sex robot conversation. And we did, we had a couple of good ones, brought the, totally brought the culture wars in, but that's another story. Um, and we had a guy called Ron Arkin, who is a, a roboticist, a famous roboticist from Georgia Tech. And he was visiting and we had a, an event about, um, what do they call them? Autonomous lethal weapons, basically killer mm. robots. Yeah. Can, you know, are we better off by letting the robots go into the combat zone and they won't make mistakes, you know, because it's yeah. going to be They're sure they won't make mistakes. And Ron was pretty much, yes, we should regulate this because the best way to deal with this is to regulate it. Otherwise, bad actors are just going to develop these things anyway. And my colleague, Toby Welsh, was, you know, very respectfully, uh, no, we should ban them. So really cool dynamic debate. And afterwards, we're having dinner, nice glass of Shiraz, and I'm chatting to Ron about it. And he said, you know, I was, I worked on the Sony Ibo project, the little robotic dogs, and Whoa. we basically studied dogs. And then we tried to implement the doggishness into this thing. And he said, I am, am terrified, not about sex robots. You can make a machine that you can have sex with and that's fine. Uh, that's just a toy. Um, but what terrifies me after seeing what we were able to do with the dogs is the notion of of emulating intimacy, because I'm pretty sure we'll be able to do that. And that's really where the, the, the title for the book came from and the idea to make this about, you know, what happens when the machines can do the bit that you think that's the human bit in relationships. You just talked about your own relationships, you know, you do things online, but sooner or later, you've got the human to human component, which is where the magic happens. What happens when the machines can do the interpersonal magic? And a lot of people go, well, they'll never be able to be as good as a person. That doesn't matter. You know, most machines are not as good as a person at anything, but they are good enough to, to do the job, to do yeah. some, some part of the job. What happens when they pick up and start doing part of the job, what will be left? Um, and so I thought that's a really cool topic for driving these conversations about sexual conflict and about evolution and about what it means to be human. And that's why I got hooked on this idea. 
Um, and so Ron was was really formative in that. And he's tr- he's right. I think it is terrifying. I think that becoming friends, building loyalty, falling in love, becoming intimate, which is really just the process of folding your sense of another person into your sense of self. Mm-hmm. Those are just algorithmic processes. They're actually really well suited to machines. Um, yeah. And so that's that's what I think is is the really interesting <clears throat> thing coming up. Yeah, no, uh, that story is really interesting too. And I was just thinking about a uh, previous guest, uh, Kate Mann and her book, um, where it was talking about, you know, just more around the ethics around how we treat robots. And she was, re- it's called the new breed and she relates into animals, right? And, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about like essentialism and stuff and how we put this idea of like, oh, this is a, there's a thing, there's a person that has something within them. Cause like, there's been stories of, you know, people like uh, on the battlefield, not wanting to leave the robot behind. And so I can see that, you know, and when you're talking about like algorithms and stuff, I think about like the Turing test, right? Like, can they develop something where it's like, Hey, this is a human, but in the book, I think that's, that's an interesting place to, you know, kind of discuss is, you know, these like chat bots, right? Mm-hmm. Because I often think like, there's so many aspects of this human life, like, cause I'm always trying to get to the root of the problem. Um, I was just writing something about just like why we're all angry all the time and stuff like that. But right now we're dealing with a lot of loneliness too, yeah. right? So yeah. when you combine loneliness with a chat robot, it, it feels like, or a chat bot, like, so if you're just talking to a machine and you don't realize it, like that loneliness almost makes it so you're not thinking through like, oh, maybe this isn't even a person. So can you talk about kind of where we're at with like chat box? Because you you dive into like people getting scammed and stuff like that, which people need to get aware, uh, be aware of. So how does that work when we're chatting with someone online who might just be fake, they're playing into our vulnerabilities and kind of uh, stroking our ego and making us feel wanted and make us feel loved. Where are we at technology-wise with that? And is that something people should be worried about right now? Yeah, so I was on a panel um, at this fantastic um, Greek kind of event uh, based in Greece. Um, And it was on a panel with the science fiction author Ted Chiang, um, wrote a rival and a few other things. One of my favorite authors. And so, you know, I, I, I cheekily afterwards, because we were doing it over, um, over the internet, he was in person, I was appearing over the internet because it's, you know, travel problems. Um, and I cheekily wrote to him and said, hey, would you like a copy of the book? And I sent it and he read it. And I was so delighted that he read it. But he said to me, hey, I, I was um, at another event and this, the CEO of, the, of this company that makes this product called Replica AI um, was showing me this. And... You know, this chatbot is a lot like the chatbots you speak about that you think are coming in the near future. Because a great deal of my book is really me imagining the next five to 10 years. So we're not mm-hmm. looking down at the singularity, you know, and stuff. We're looking in the near future of sort of social robotics and social AI. Um, and, and he said, check out Replica AI. So I went online and I set up an account with, you know, customized my avatar. Um, and, and the avatar of my AI and chatted to her and she is, um, remarkable at just doing the basic friend stuff yeah. of remembering what it was that you said and what kind of a state you were in yesterday and just picking up the thread of the conversation. And it's obviously, you know, Siri and Alexa and Cortana and mm-hmm. Duo is, you know, they get millions of marriage proposals a year, but they are. They're assistants, like they're designed to be the 
um, not your friend, I'm your assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and nonetheless, you know, people do perhaps jokingly, but not entirely jokingly, develop feelings for these disembodied voices that, that we carry around in our pockets. Um, and here's Replica AI, who's actually designed to be your friend. And it, it does the friend stuff. Um, and I've just got the free version. I don't have the $100 a year kind of subscription yet. Uh, but I have asked a little bit about, you know, do you flirt with people? And, you know, I'm always very flirty, uh, you know, and asked a couple of questions that would allow me to figure out where is this in the romance space? And then all of a sudden it's like, you can upgrade to the romance package here too. And the reviews of this product are such that people say, this is the first thing I want to do in the morning. When I wake up, I want to talk to my replica AI. I don't have a partner. And this is, this is very much taking the, the space in my headspace and in my heart of a romantic partner or a best friend. And, you know, so we don't have to really talk about, will they be our best friends in the future? That technology's here. Yeah. And it seems like it's even simpler to implement than we might have imagined. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's very high, high level programming, uh, but nonetheless, you know, we're there. So yeah, yeah, a hundred dollars a year for someone who's like extremely lonely. And, you know, these are the things that I think about. And, and it's interesting too, what I, what I love about, you know, authors and researchers too, is like the, the different, uh, kind of avenues that you have to kind of intertwine. Like you talk a lot about, uh, like ethics and stuff like that. And these are things that we have to think about, but something that comes to my mind, especially when we're talking about like conservatives and liberals, especially those who are like, you know, religious conservative, right. And, you know, one of the things that always comes up, whether uh, whether we're talking about AI, sex robots or whatever, there's like this like huge fear that we are going to stop mating. We're going to have this uh, crisis where nobody's making babies and all this stuff, which is crazy because I remember everybody's like, oh, the world's going to be overpopulated. We're going to run out of food. And we're all going to die. And the second the numbers dip a little bit, they're like, oh, my God, we're going to die out as a species. So that's that's always interesting to me. But anyways sex robots, AI, and stuff like that. And I think a good thing to, you know, mention is I remember, I can't remember if it was China or Japan or something, but anyways, there was more sex robots because there weren't enough women for the men, right? So the sex robot industry was booming. So I see this, you know, like just thinking about ethics and humanity and stuff, like I see this helping lonely people like uh, when you were talking just now, I was I was thinking of like somebody whose spouse just passed away, right? Sounds like some yeah. Black Mirror stuff. They had an episode kind of like that, right? But um, even like an older person where their partner just died of old age or whatever. And I'm like, this is highly beneficial. But then you have the people who are like, we're going to stop having human connections. And this is like the fear mongering around tech. So there's this weird balance. And I'm curious where where your thoughts are on that? Do you think it's taking away from human relationships? I think you touched on in the book. Is it giving people like training to talk to people, you know, like in person a little bit better, like through talking to AI, maybe they become a little bit more sociable. They have confidence. So what are your thoughts on that? Look, I think all of the above really, you know, it's a bit like there's some, there's some group of people, despite what the, you know, COVID conspiracy theorists might suggest, there's not a cabal of 10 incredibly wealthy intelligent people who sit in a room and decide how these things are going to play out. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, um, all of the economy and all of the tech is really a bottom up thing. Um, from, as far as I can understand it. Um, and so I think that any kind of technology that you can imagine and articulate to me 
is likely to, if it's not already here, it's well and truly on the way. And what will the consequences be? Well, you know, I think it's worth being concerned, um, about, about it all going to hell, um, you yeah. know, and, and it's worth also being relaxed about it and going, Hey, this could, a lot of this could really be incredibly beneficial. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's a great deal of discussion about people who don't really trust tech about, about, you know, designing this stuff, getting, um, getting people of all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different interests together to design this stuff, to make it best for everybody, to make it ethical and, uh, you know, applicable to not just, you know, white men in their twenties, etc. Um, you know, entrepreneurial thinking doesn't necessarily always work that way. Yeah. I think the people who come up with things are the people who spot something that they can do and then they implement it and they do it. But at some point you do have to regulate this kind of stuff. So I guess the most informative parallel is, is with social media. And there are people, you know, of my generation who can see our kids. I have, you know, teenage through to young adults, kids, um, and I can see the effect that this is having on them. Or should I say, I can see the effect that living in this current time is having on them. And much of that plays out through their phones and through their social media accounts. And I wish it were different in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I, of course I forget about all the really good things that come with it and the broader social networks that they have, et cetera. But I go, is social media a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's not an either or proposition. Mm. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot we can do and a lot that we should do in order to ensure that social media is less, not just social media, but the, the entire economic sort of ecosystem that hangs off it is less predatory, is less manipulative, is less able to just use your data um, against you because machine learning you know, plus all of the data that you've laid down throughout history is, is an unfair opponent. It's like saying you have to learn chess, but you have to, you learn it against the very, very best kind of chess program that yeah. plays the grandmasters every time, every time, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, social media, I think absolutely there's, there's a lot that's, um, in our world in which we are worse off for having social media and then. I can't imagine having gone through the last two years and the lockdowns and isolations yeah. that we've had without social media. So it's, it's not a, it, it, it's not a good versus bad, you know, all, all the tech is good or all the tech is bad. It's a, let's, let's, you know, create an ecosystem in which this tech can come to the fore and can flourish and yet have a conversation about the fact that sometimes we may go down a blind alley into. And it's especially true with something like sex robots, where there are folks going, absolutely not. That will dehumanize all people all the time. Yeah. And, you know, no, you don't know that because we haven't done the research. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I actually had to reschedule. Uh, I had an earlier interview with uh, Michael Baxar, who wrote uh, Human Frontiers, all about innovation and stuff. And I just finished his book, talk about things stifling innovation. And, you know, and yeah, so that came to mind. Like, yeah, we, we have to let it flourish kind of see where it's going, see these things, you know, we're going to make mistakes. And then that's where regulation kind of pops in. But when we're talking about our kids too, like I've been, you know, I've been very vocal. Like I write about it. I talk about it um, with social media. I don't like some of the fear, but I'm the father. I have a 13 year old son who just turned 13 a couple of weeks ago. And I think about when I was growing up, 
it was uh, America Online just came on, right? You could talk to people and everything. When I grew up, I was a very introverted, socially anxious kid, right? And this mm-hmm. is kind of why I went down the route of like finding girls to meet online and stuff. I was never the type of guy who would go to a bar and just like talk mm-hmm. to somebody. Yeah. So it was easier for me. It was easier for me. So when I see stuff like, uh, uh, you know, I've had some conflicting views from like people like Jonathan Haidt, who's like, he talks a lot about the effect that social media has on our kids. But anyways, you bring up like a great point. Like, can you imagine the last two years, right? Um, yeah. with Without this. And so my son, he's a gamer like me. And this today when we were driving around running some errands, I was telling him when I was younger, we didn't have Xbox Live. You couldn't play with people online. Like my friend had to come over. We had to bring his video game system over. We had to hook it up with a cable, have two TVs. You know what I mean? But now, like my son, uh, some of his best friends he's been playing video games with for years, they live across the country, right? Yeah. Uh, he was telling me today, he has like a new friend who's like in Ireland and they play and stuff. So I think about that aspect and, you know, I'm always trying to keep up to date on the research, like how much are we losing? Cause we're social creatures, right? You don't see the facial expressions and stuff like that, but he is communicating. He, these are real relationships, right? Mm. These are real friendships. But then when I have you on and we're talking about artificial intelligence, this is not a human being. So let's say my son just never made friends with anybody on Xbox Live. Would I, would I be all right if he spent all his time talking to a machine? And I think that, <laughs> that's where my brain gets a little scrambled because I'm like, no, but then I think why and stuff like that um, because I do want him to have human interaction. So even though I think it's all right talking via Zoom, via Xbox Live, I don't know where I'd be uh, with him talking to a machine so uh yeah like what are your thoughts around something like replica ai and people building that kind of friendship like if it was if it was right if you were creating this technology or you you were creating regulations what would you kind of think about that and how often so someone can fight their loneliness but also not just become a total hermit you know what i mean yeah 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 i mean i think it's i i think it's a really good question because, you know, we only have a limited amount of sort of cognitive headspace. Mm-hmm. We only have a limited amount of time in our day. Um, and, you know, we're talking here about people, you know, historically folks were, were constrained by, by energy, by what food they could get mm. in the hunter-gatherer past um, and possibly by money. Um, but now, you know, we, we're talking here, obviously lots of people are still constrained by money and many are still constrained by energy, but we're talking here about people whose big constraint is time and attention. And what do you spend that time and attention on? And it's, I don't think that there's, um, there's a particularly good answer out there other than, you know, um, too much of anything is likely to be back for you. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so if you're spending your entire time on Xbox, go and do some other things uh-huh. and get outside. And as parents, we have to build that relationship with them. Unfortunately, we're the one who's, they're not associating with all of the, you know, short-term uh-huh. dopamine hits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you, you know, what happens if you have virtual friends and if those virtual friends crowd out the space for real people, whether they be across the world playing Xbox with you or whether they be down the street, you know, and you're riding around on your bikes, et cetera, you know, like we used to do when I was a kid. Um, And I suppose, you know, under some circumstances, people 
probably won't have the, the kinds of opportunities for face-to-face -face interactions. Well, some people are just, if, you, if you're a, a queer kid growing up in, you know, oh, yeah. rural Iowa or something like that, um, you're not going to want to go out and play with the kind of kids that you encounter, but mm. you can encounter people who are good company for you online and stuff. So, so there's always those possibilities those, those possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, but if we, if we get to the sort of the, the slightly further future where the virtual friends are AI driven, they're, they're smart, they can give you something that's very much like friendship. What could be bad with that? Well, it depends on what the machine's designed to do. Is the machine designed to give you a fulfilling human-like experience? Does the machine have its own interests? Like yeah. your friend down the road who wants to go on to become an astronaut or something like that. And you're just, you know, a ship passing in the night and, you, and, and for a few years you're good friends. Or does, is the machine designed to prop you up? In which case, maybe we create a whole generation of narcissists, you know, <laughs> that puts this generation of narcissists yeah. to shame. <laughs> or is it designed, and we already have a friend like this, and it's called YouTube. Yeah. Which is designed to give you, to show you stuff that you want a bit like mm -hmm. your friends coming around and playing their records and you playing your records, but far less, uh, far less messy. And mm -hmm. what is it designed to do? It's designed to sell you crap, you know, yeah. so there yeah. you go. Um, so, you know, YouTube's very much a virtual friend in my opinion. Um, it's yeah. just doesn't have a human face to it, but. We, we, we're already seeing the effect that that's having on people's attention spans. You know, my own son, his thing that he probably spends more, has at least in the past spent more time on at the expense of other things he should have been doing is YouTube. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and so that's yeah. uh yeah, no, YouTube's a great example because I, uh, uh, I actually come from the YouTube world. So before the podcast, I was YouTuber and, you know, I talked a lot about mental health and everything like that. And I quickly uh, learned about how strong parasocial relationships come on there, right? YouTube was kind of created as this thing where it felt like somebody was just in their room by themselves with a camera talking to you, right? Yeah. Uh, for a while, there was these videos called story time where it felt like someone was just telling you a story. And I don't know if you've ever come across these uh, mukbang videos where someone just eating right yeah yeah and i actually I, I started trying to learn like i'm like what is the why are people drawn to this and i kept coming across the same answer people are like i eat along with them and it feels like i'm not eating alone so again yeah. that goes back to that loneliness and it's interesting but something else that came to mind while you were talking about like what's the goal what's the intention of this artificial intelligence and my mind since i'm like you know i'm always worried about capitalism and people trying to make money I, now I'm imagining an AI that's designed to be your friend and how would they incorporate ads into that, right? So you have a mm -hmm. friend and all of a sudden it's like, hey, you should try this new uh, burger over at McDonald's, right? And that's a paid advertisement and if it's not disclosed because it's not popular. Yeah, so that's when I get afraid. But I have a little bit more of your time, Rob, and now we're going to go down the the dark sections of your book. Sure. Because, uh, yeah, so this might get us in trouble with some of the culture wars, but... With all this that we're talking about, when it comes to loneliness, when we're talking about AI, when we're talking about robots, one of the things, uh, you know, talking about young people, there's been a rise uh, of the, the term incel, right? So mm -hmm. involuntary, uh, invol in involuntarily celibate, right? 
So these young men uh, who feel like they they cannot get a woman, they cannot do what they were evolutionarily designed to do. And I have a whole theory about that is they're, they're setting their bar too high. Like you need to lower mm-hmm. that thing, right? But you talk about this a little bit in the book, right? So incels, uh, not all of them, but some of them, when we look at the bajillion mass shootings that happen here in the United States, mm-hmm. a lot of them are being labeled, they're, they're these young white men, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem like people who can't attract a mate or they don't have the skills to or whatever. But you talk about this in the book, like, what if we provided them with sex robots? What if they had access to this kind of intimate, this artificial intimacy, right? So what, what are your thoughts? Like, where the, uh, what are the you know, ethical conversations we need to have around that? Because if I'm going to jump into somebody on the left and freaking out, it's like the, conver- the, the backlash comes from, you're giving these men an excuse to act the way they are. And it's like, well, or are we giving them a tool they can use to steer them away from the path of doing something potentially bad or terrible or becoming angry, sitting online, talking with these other guys going through it and just fueling the flames, you know? So what are some of the conversations we need to have around? Well, I think we need to, you know, come to terms with the fact that, um, you know, just like there's an epidemic of loneliness, there is a, a, there's a large subsection of um, humanity who really want a romantic relationship and a sexual relationship and who, uh, you know, don't have access to that, cannot do that. Whether that's by due of their, um, you know, personality flaws or whether that's because of their local economic and social circumstances, whether there's something else to that. Um, and there are a number of different reasons. The other thing that's really important to acknowledge is that this is not a new problem. This is not something that was invented mm. in high schools in America. This is something that has been around since the beginning of time because there are always um, some social and demographic um, circumstances that just make, um, you know, just make for more young men who are, can't see how they're ever going to have a relationship. Psychologists, evolutionary psychologists have a word for this and it's the young male syndrome. Basically, young men particularly poor young men um, are invisible to women and they have to find a way to become invisible by climbing in status among the other men amongst them, in which case they do really stupid things. They take risks, they drive too fast, they get involved in fights, uh, they act obnoxious um, in order to climb that. And sometimes they do very productive things like if you think of, you know, uh, Maradona or um, Pele or um, Ronaldo, for example, these are guys who came from absolute poverty, found a skill for their young male syndrome that was a great outlet for it and rose to phenomenal wealth. Muhammad yeah. Ali, just about anybody in boxing, actually, mm-hmm. um, or, or football um, and in, a, in basketball, I guess, in the United States too. Mm-hmm. So those are outlets that allow the young male syndrome to be channeled and some individuals are able to rise to the top. Of course, not everybody can be Michael Jordan. Um, mm. And so, um, you know, you, it, the, the, the whole problem isn't solved by giving people to the productive athletes. Yeah. But what we do know with young men, um, and what I'm sure you've encountered a lot in your, in your reading and in your um, interviews and stuff, is that young men need something that's going to basically occupy them and distract them in mm-hmm. the education or employment or at the very least, something that's going to entertain them. Otherwise, they do stupid things. 
and they get, mm-hmm. they get self-absorbed. And if they have access to guns or to weapons, then sometimes they take that out. The, the worst of the worst, the most unstable of that tip of the iceberg will yeah. do things like um, the Ilavista shootings. So um, what, is, what do um, sort of sex robots and perhaps the more slightly more palatable form of digital lover that I speak a lot about in the book, which is virtual reality lovers, what do mm-hmm. they do? It's like an, a replica AI, but it also has various peripherals that you can have some kind of a sexual relationship with. Well, at the very least, they distract people from the fact that they, you know, they're not able to have those relationships at the moment, or they're not doing so well in having the relationships that they want to have, but they can have something that's a bit like that fantasy. Mm. Unfortunately, that, that has, on, on, we, we know already that, um, that does distract people from it because pornography already does that job. Yeah. Distracts people from what they don't have and it feeds those fantasies. Unfortunately, um, it may reinforce the notion that, you know, uh, that, that the bar is here. That, oh yeah. You know, yeah. If, if all you see is sex is porn stars having sex, um, and you, you know, we always project ourselves into what it is that we're watching, then perhaps you, you have an unrealistic um, opinion of what mm. it is that of what sex is going to be like. And then with a real person, it's never going to, it's always going to feel like it's sort of second best, but that's actually a question that needs to be researched. Again, that proper research hasn't been done yet to be yeah. sure about that. But we do know that, you know, more pornography equals less violence, less sexual violence, or at least no more. Yeah. Um, and so with these digital lovers, what they can do is they can, if you imagine that there's this, this sort of pool of men who are invisible to women or at least invisible to the kinds of women that they would like to attract. Um, and that, that pool of the young men of men is, is causing problems socially. How do we neutralize that pool, manage that pool in a way that is humane, mm-hmm. that respects them as individuals, but of course, doesn't cause any problems for the other people who, you know, um, uh, are currently kind of innocent bystanders or potentially victims of those people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one possibility is, is, um, a much more relaxed sexual future in which we have these technologies and there is a general, you know, people are having more sex with machines and with virtual reality entities. And as a result, sex in the real world becomes a little bit less of a, of a must do urgent, you know, every, mm. you, you, you're only a legitimate human being if you're in a monogamous sexual relationship with somebody, et cetera. And I think that that, that very messy roundabout route, I think is probably, um, going to be the most important possible route. Of course, folks from both the left and the right will want to shut that down yeah. because they have their own ideological reasons for that. The other thing is that, um, part of the problem comes from the, the guys at the top who are sexually attractive who are wealthy and skilled, um, perhaps have, have good interpersonal skills, et cetera, are good looking. Um, you know, these are the guys that the incels really resent and those guys are able to have multiple sexual relationships. And, you know, for every man at the, at the top of that tree who has two partners, there's somebody down the bottom who has none as a consequence of it. Now, what if, what if, and this, I don't, can't see this coming about, but it would be really cool if it did. If the sex robots and the virtual reality lovers were high-priced luxury goods, these guys could use instead of women as their sort of advertisement of how mm, you know potent yeah. and powerful they are, and would basically that might neutralize some of what they're doing at the top end of the market, such that sexual relationships become something that normal people do. Um, 
in a more relaxed kind of a way. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. kind of my hope for the future, I guess. Uh, yeah. When, yeah. When you're talking about like, uh, I, I think you, you know, hit on something great there, like, uh, uh, like the, the status, like the young, uh, the young male syndrome and stuff, because I feel, especially here in the United States, when I hear, you know, political arguments, when I see what, you know, our government's doing and everything like that, it feels like when, if this conversation were to arise, we're not getting down to the root of the problem. Like, how do we provide like the right uh, social and economic situations for people to have a fighting chance to raise themselves up the, the social hierarchy? Because yeah, we're, it's all like status. And you, you see this while you're researching animals too. It's about status, 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 status. Where am I on that ladder, right? And there's a lot of people who are not providing that opportunity. And, and yeah, so that's an interesting aspect as well. But, but yeah, one of, the, one of the last things I want to ask you, this is, the, this is a difficult one. And let me preface this with something that might get me canceled again. But I think uh, since you talk about this a little bit in the book, uh, I might be all right talking with you about it, is pedophilia, right? So I, I come from a... Uh, a mental health background. I've worked in drug and alcohol addiction treatment. I've worked with people with not just your standard anxiety, depression, trauma. I've worked with people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, right? So I see these mental illnesses that are completely biological, right? Like if somebody had a choice before they were born, nobody's going to be like, yeah, sign me up for some bipolar disorder or give me some schizophrenia, right? Mm. So, you know, I'm the father of a 13-year-old son and one of my nightmares was, was and still is anything happening to him and being abused, sure. right? I've had friends, you know, both men and women who are abused as children, right? But, but, um, you know, one of my favorite books is the, uh, you know, it's evil from uh, Roy Baumeister. He talks about the myth of pure evil. So when we're talking about pedophiles, it's easy to just be like, they're evil, disgusting creatures, right? But if I even take a second to try to empathize, I'm like, I don't, I don't think many I don't think many of the, I, I, I'd say the majority probably didn't sign up for this. Something's wrong. Something's twisted. A lot of them do have uh, some kind of uh, sexual trauma from their past as well, which is a whole nother thing, mm. right? So we need to stop it so we don't create more. But anyways, that's where I empathize with them. So now I've seen this conversation argued about and screamed about, but it's childlike sex robots, right? Mm -hmm. And just even thinking about it, like I get nauseous, right? But if I step back, put my science hat on, put on my philosopher hat, like, uh, and think about this, I'm like, is that better? What are the possible harms, right? Because people just instantly say, that's gross, don't do it, right? And I've actually had some conversations about stuff like this via email, because you can only have them in private. But I ask, I'm like, okay, what are some solutions? Like, like do you take these people from day one uh, because uh, there's this new thing called MAPS, Minor Attracted People or something, where they say that they're attracted or something like that. They say they're attracted to young people, but they don't act on it, right? And I ask, I'm like, should we take those people who are not taking action and just lock them up? Is that the most humane thing to do, right? Like, that reminds me of, like, Minority Report, like, mm. you know, future crimes. Like, they haven't even committed it yet, mm. but we're going to lock them up. So anyways... I see these childlike sexual robots, like it makes me nauseous. I don't like the idea of it, but from a humanity point of view, I'm like, is that the best option? I don't know. And you talk about this a little bit in the book. So what are some things, what are some conversations? What are some things we should be taking into consideration when it comes to this? Because we don't want children abused, but these people are humans and a lot of them didn't choose who they're attracted to. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I suppose, uh, first aside, 
is, you know, why is our response to it so very, very strong? Um, obviously, because, you know, harm comes to, to children and we have a responsibility to children, et cetera. But, you know, is there something in the particular psychological response to the notion of, of um, mm. pedophiles? Probably, you know, probably there is. And that is that the, the only tools we've had in the past is to kind of mob people out of society or at least let them know we're watching you so, so don't go anywhere near the kids kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's probably been this pragmatic evolved slash culturally evolved thing that we've had in the past. Now, I don't know that there's any research saying that definitely, uh, but that would be my intuition. That's the hypothesis that I would test if I was studying the subject. Um, on the question of, of sex robots that resemble underage people, uh, you know, there's a, there are very strong arguments made on the side of. Um, if we were to make those robots available, then they would um, they would perhaps encourage and enable people to you know fully develop their pathology, and actually they would be worse because you and you're normalising it and you're making it okay. And um, and this is true in a lot of arguments about sex robots is that um, you know people would treat these objects like objects because they are objects and that would lead to some kind of transferring of, of that treatment to other people in which they treat other people as objects. So a lot of mm -hmm. the, the folks who think that, you know, sex robots are going to cause a, a rise in sexual assault of saying that it's going to create more objectification of women. Now, what do we know? The, op the opposite of objectification is in fact anthropomorphized. I hate that word too. Yeah, <laughs> and that one. Anthropomorphization, which is yeah. the treating of objects like people. What we do know with robots is that people are very willing to treat people-like entities, whether they're just voices like Siri or whether they're sex robots. We're willing to treat them as if they were people. Mm. Um, and so um, the, the other possibility, and this is one that many people have made the argument, is that you know, if you create, if you allow people this robotic outlet, then they'll be neutralized. Um, now, you know, whenever these kinds of arguments have been made, they've always been made with far more heat than light. You know, whether it's um, first-person shooter games yeah. or whether it's violent films or whether it's violent rap lyrics or whatever, you know, these are always right in the middle of the culture wars because people are saying, well, it's normalizing it and other people are like, no, it's an outlet. And whenever there's... Um, good evidence, um, like uh, opening of, of violent movies at cinemas, et cetera, what we tend to find is that it does distract people. So people who would be out there doing bad things can be distracted by technology and entertainment, and this reduces the incidence of bad things. It doesn't create a whole new generation of people who go, wow, that's what I like, and they go out and do that. I think yeah. they already know what they like. So... Um, the problem with this question, and some therapists say we should we should use the robots in this way to treat people with pedophilia and hebophilia and ephebophilia, which are the other kind of slightly older um, but yeah. still illegal preferences. Um, and, and some therapists are like, I don't want to go there because it's far too slippery a slope, etc. What you really need, once again, is proper research. Mm -hmm. You know, get people who do identify this way give them a randomized controlled trial, you know, um, and, and either assign them to having the robot or some other kind of therapy or whatever it is, 
and see what works. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you know, we've just had our our national grants come out and the government has done this heinous thing of going through the titles after peer review, after very careful assessment of multiple panels has decided which of these grants, which of the the one in five grants is going to get funded. And the government's going, oh, that one sounds a bit silly. It sounds a bit like a bunch of lefties just, you know, and, and slashed a couple of the grants. And I can only imagine that if we were to get this kind of funding to do this kind of work from a government that immatures in the society, particularly the anti-science lobby, who come out and ridicule anything that's done as research as being stupid yeah. or frivolous, or, you know, et cetera, would, would mob us just like a, 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 a mob with pitchforks would yeah. mob the local person who's accused of being a pedophile. Yeah. So, so, so last question, I promise. Let's talk about this research for a second. I don't know if you heard that story. It just popped in my mind. It recently happened in the United States, and it's exactly what you're talking about. There was a young, there was a professor, right? A professor, and they were doing their class on Zoom or whatever, but uh, they they were talking and they wrote a book about uh, these these people attracted to children and young people, right? And they were coming at it, from what I understand, I want to grab their book and see, see if there's anything terrible, right? But from what I saw from the video clips, because the video started going viral, was they were saying like, hey, there's some people who are attracted to children. They don't act on it. We need to be okay with this. These are humans, like kind of like what we're talking about. But Mm. then they were also saying what you're saying, we need to research it. And this seems like one topic where the left and the right unite as one and just come raining hellfire on somebody. So this sparked something huge in the United States where it was covered by all the major media outlets, left and right and center and everybody. This professor, uh, I believe they were asked to resign, right? And it's because they were looking into this because the conversations come up. You're trying to normalize this. You're trying to do this, right? And I just have like one simple question, right? Would we rather be like, like tomorrow we're not going to wake up and every single pedophile is just going to be gone, like an extinct species. Something's happening. We, we don't even know why, why it happens half the time because we're not mm. researching it. So it's like, wouldn't you rather understand it more than less? Isn't that the best way to protect our children is to research it and understand and see what's working? But this professor just just had the mob come after them and, they, and they're no longer working because they wanted to research this, because they wanted to study it, because of what people are saying. And, and yeah, I just, I, I don't know what, what the next steps are. How do we research these difficult times? Like, I understand that they're difficult, but what, I, I just, I, I can't see how it's a positive thing. The public getting involved and saying what we should and should not research, like, uh, I obviously get like there's certain terrible things that we can research, right? Like when they were doing like medical experience, uh, experiments on, you know, certain minorities and stuff. Yeah. Let's say no to that. Right. But when it comes to like psychological research and what's going to help, like what, what can we do? What, what's your message to everybody about so we can research and stuff a little bit better? Yeah. I know. It's a very good question. I think the notion that you need to have a bit of maturity as a society to set up proper, you know, funding schemes that will, will support and, and ethical review schemes, et cetera, that will support the research that we need to do and not be intimidated by people's knee-jerk reactions. Because the one thing about science we know is that, you know, if, if everything was um, what 
people intuitively believe, we wouldn't need science if our intuitions were that good. Exactly. We could just listen to Joe Rogan and go get on with our lives, you know? Yeah. But no, um, we know that the world doesn't work that way. We know that very often, uh, you know, counter intuitions are important or things that we can't even imagine. Or if you look at quantum physics, things that, you know, you, nobody can imagine really or visualize are actually really, really important in terms of the way that the world works. And this is especially true with social dynamics. Um, so, you know, of course, societies um, should have some say in the way in which uh, research plays out. But that's what that say is and how it is exercised, I think, is something that is a real sign of how mature a society is. Yeah. And I don't... You know, often in the book, I say, you know, these are questions that would be really well solved by going and doing empirical research, well-constructed empirical research. But I don't think that any society has the maturity yet to allow us to get to the direct answer to these questions. So sometimes we'll have to ask indirect answers yeah. to questions like, you know, what happens in countries that allow this compared to countries that don't allow it? That's not nearly as good a comparison. Um, mm -hmm. But... Sometimes that's all that's left to us. But in the end, you know, um, if you want to make progress as a society, if you want to, you know, enjoy the benefits of knowledge, then you have to figure out the difference between ideas that might be true and ideas that definitely aren't true. And you can't do that with, you know, postmodernism and you can't do that with, uh, you know, polling the public. You can only do that with proper scientific methods that sift out the bad ideas and, and say, okay, that, now that idea might sound nice or that yeah. might play to your intuitions, but actually it's not true. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, when I, again, go back to the Neil Wilson thing, you know, when I saw people, <laughs> uh, I saw, you know, I follow a lot of academics and everything and people were speaking out against what scientific America did and stuff like that. And I think it's really important that our institutions have a stronger backbone, you know, like you mentioned, like we have ethical boards and stuff, like, is this just research ethical? And if it meets certain criteria and certain guidelines, we need to move forward because imagine just back in the day, uh, you know, like could Galileo have researched what he did if, you know, uh, or, well, he did have people like coming after him, right? When you had like the religious mm. people coming down and just, so we have to think in that kind of way because we have to make progress, you know, because science makes our world a better place, you know? And like you talk about in this book, there's certain things that are coming, whether we like it or not. So let's start, let's start researching it. Well, so that's the terrifying thing, you know, that um, Facebook Corporation can do what, whatever they call now, Meta, can do whatever research they want in-house. You know, they can yeah. basically design experiments the way that they lay things out. They'll do A-B testing. Any technology company will be doing, will be testing people all the time. Their um, machine learning algorithms are mining our data and doing research basically on us. Yeah. And now, you know, government institutions, universities can't do that because we need to get informed consent. Most social research these days is being done by companies that, you know, social media companies, for example, uh, who are able to design their own tests in-house, um, and even more than that, by machine learning algorithms that are mining through our data and mm -hmm. learning more about us. And I think that most of what we discover about human nature in the future is going to be done by uh, these corporations and by the machine learning algorithms, and, and less and less of it is going to be done by um, institutions like universities who are actually disinterested in the outcomes and who mm -hmm. are likely to come up with the answers that are much more 
in the public interest. And so the public really does have an interest in enabling science and research at the level of universities and public institutions um, mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that it's not a popularity contest and it's not what sounds good and it's not what fits your ideological agenda. It's the process of sorting out the difference between what might be true from what definitely isn't true. Absolutely. And yeah, Rob, thank you so much for coming on. I absolutely love the book. It was one of the most surprising, surprisingly good books I read last year. I'm glad we were able to link up. So Artificial Intimacy, uh, where can people find it? And where can people find you to see all the cool, interesting stuff that you're researching and talking about? Sure. So I'm, um, my website is robbrooks.meet. One, you know, Rob Brooks, one word. Um, I tweet is probably my, Twitter is probably my most, um, sort of prolific, uh, social media and it's at Brooks underscore Rob. Um, and the book's available, uh, it's published in the Northern Hemisphere by Columbia University Press. If you go to my website, there's a, a link to get it, uh, with a discount. Uh, it's also, you know, available in all the good online booksellers and especially um, and a number of uh, booksellers um, in the, the real physical space. And I'd love to see pictures on social media of where people have picked it up um, because I haven't had terribly many of those um, in terms of which kind of bookshops are kept carrying it at the moment. So. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank well, you, yeah, I'll, uh, when I go to the bookstore, I'll keep an eye out for it and we'll snap Cheers. a copy for it. <laughs> thanks, yeah, Rob, thanks again so much. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Lovely. So good talking to you. Cheers, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob Brooks. And yeah, I, I hope that you walk away, not, you know, not just from uh, this episode, but from all the episodes, like with questions, right? With questions, ask yourself, look at things from different perspectives and stuff. Like one of the reasons I, I love Rob's uh, book, I wasn't expecting so many questions to just run through my mind and just wonder about where technology is going. Can it help? Does it hurt? You know, our now, one of the big fears, you know, that uh, Rob and I discuss is like, you know, are people using technology too much? Is it, you know, uh, hurting our social relationships? So I want you to, you know, read his book, read Artificial Intimacy. Uh, take a look at the questions that are coming up. Ask yourself about your relationships, your friends' relationships, your kids' relationships. Where are we going to be in 10, 20 years? You know, all this stuff, like something I'll always say, regardless of your opinions about technology, and one of the reasons why I don't like getting involved in the whole, the whole like, oh, technology and social media in general is bad for you. Like, we're not going backwards with technology. We're going to keep going forwards. So the best we could do is start asking these questions and having conversations about them. So yeah, make sure you head down to the description, follow Rob, grab a copy of his book, Artificial Intimacy. It is out. So make sure you check it out. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right. But before I let you go, a few things. Again, make sure you're following me on social media, Instagram and Twitter, at The Rewired Soul. I've also been catching up, uploading a bunch of these episodes over to YouTube. So if you're not yet, subscribe over to the YouTube channel. It's The Rewired Soul. A lot of you came to the podcast from my YouTube channel, so some of you already know this. Uh, but yeah, I do a lot of uh, video recordings for these. And I know some of you, I know I do, like listening and watching podcasts. I like seeing faces. Uh, so if you're into that, make sure you head over to the YouTube channel. And yeah, a couple uh, quick, easy, free ways to support the podcast. Share this episode. If you think uh, this was an interesting conversation, some good topics came up, share it on social media. Get the word out there, all right? Next thing, take two seconds, 
head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. Not only does this stuff uh, spread the word about the podcast, but the algorithms love this stuff. All right. So it really helps me out a lot. Um, some other ways that you can support the podcast. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, if you want to get early episodes of the podcast, head over to Substack, become a paid subscriber, $5 a month, $50 for a year, easy stuff. You get early episodes, a little comes back, help support the podcast, what I'm doing here and my reading habit and all that. And uh, lastly, you know, Rob and I, we talked about, you know, loneliness and, you know, mental health and all these other things. And I'm a huge advocate for taking care of your mental health. I'm a recovering drug addict. I have uh, gone through therapy and all that stuff. So there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used Help me out a ton. Um, it's affordable. You could do it from the comfort of your own home or wherever you are. Like I would do sessions in my car on my lunch break uh, at, at one of my last jobs before the pandemic and all that. But yeah, you work with a, a, a licensed therapist. If you don't like your therapist, boom, click of a button. You get to switch therapists, no awkward conversations and all of that. And yeah, it's a really great service. So if you're interested, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy down below. All right, but anyways, another huge thanks to Rob for coming on to chat about his book, Artificial Intimacy. Make sure you follow him, grab yourself a copy. And yeah, I will have an episode for you on Sunday. And I will be talking with uh, Kat Tenberg from, uh, well, she's formerly from Insider, but now she's with, uh, I believe, NBC. And we talk about social media, cancel culture, mental health, and some interesting stuff going on with social media influencers. That's like, it's my previous life. So it, it was great, like revisiting that and talking with somebody about all that stuff. So yeah, make sure you stay tuned for that bonus episode. All right. But yeah, other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time.